Welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I brought on Dane Zobel, partner at Fileski Flynn. Dane is a specialist in planning for farms, specifically around their sale and estate planning. And I brought him on to specifically talk about the nuances of farm sales and estate planning and how they differ from other businesses. And with that, here's my interview with Dane. Dane, thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, no, thanks, Jason. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so thank you very much, because this is going to be equally as educational for me, because I have had about all of five minutes of education surrounding farms. So this is this has been a uh, kind of gray area for me in terms of my knowledge, and I'm very interested in, in seeing what you have to say. So Dane, tell us a little bit about you and what it is you do. Yeah, you bet. I'm a partner at Fileski Flynn in the Edmonton office. Uh, Fileski Flynn specializes in tax planning and estate work, and we have offices Calgary, Edmonton and Saskatoon. Excellent. My, yeah, my, my specific area, I focus on uh, tax planning and estate planning, and I have mm-hmm. a specialty in, in farm, farm work. Excellent. So let's start off by talking about, um, you know, the family farm. I mean, this is, this is a complicated topic. Tell me about how this differs from other assets. I mean, there's a lot of emotion and, and family dynamics tied up in this, is there not? Yeah, absolutely. So in farm planning, the benefits under the Income Tax Act for farmers are very spe- specific and very nuanced. So as you can imagine, the way the West was settled and homesteaded, many mm-hmm. families have been here for at least a few generations. And so farmland in particular often has a special place in the hearts of the family members and children. There's a lot of nostalgia and uh, I myself probably romanticize the farm a little bit more than it needs to be, but definitely there is a little bit of that um, kind of special part in the heart for many people, especially when it comes to their estate planning and what they're going to do with the family farm for subsequent generations. Yes. I mean, uh, not, not many other things get passed along over centuries, quite honestly, right? Um, yes. You know, these there, there's there's you know we 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 might be talking about the first generation on a farm, or we might be talking about you know the sixth generation of farm. We don't know, right? And especially when we're talking about family dynamics and and running this, it's not just it's not just a business. There is a lot of sentiment to it because it's where people grow up, right? So uh, talk to me about. Let's, let's actually start with the the probably I would think the more likely scenario, which is around the estate planning, wanting to keep it in the family. So, how does estate planning for farms differ from that of other businesses? Yeah, so like any other estate plan, uh, when parents are looking at what they're going to do with their assets, of course, in a normal situation or any situation, you would be looking at values and who in your world, you would like to be giving uh, those assets too. In the farming context, often the farm or shares of a farming company or interests in a farming partnership, they comprise a significant amount of the value of that estate. 
And so it becomes somewhat difficult often to determine who is going to receive that farming property. And if you are able to equalize uh, perhaps the other children who aren't going to receive the farm property and the complications and dynamics there often get very interesting. They can cause a lot of angst and perhaps future hard feelings, but definitely there's a lot of planning that needs to be considered if we're going to try to equalize an estate if a significant amount of the value is in the farming assets. And, and, and the other complication, of course, arises is, do you even have any farming kids? Or if you have more than one farming mm. child, then how is that going to work? So, yeah, th th those are mm. some of the difficulties that arrive in the farm world when we're trying to do an estate plan. And then, of course, it's trying to jump into whether or not we can get the one or both of the two beneficial um, rules in the Income Tax Act uh, for farmers. Okay, so we're gonna come back to one. Um, so, I mean, first off, all I hear is an insurance salesperson's dream. Uh, you know, large equalization <laughs> issues are are definitely um, uh, sizable policies. Uh, tell me about the the beneficial aspects of the Income Tax Act and how they Im impact farm uh, properties. Yeah, you bet. So, this discussion we present on it often, and because the rules are quite nuanced and they're a little bit different. Uh, because the legislation is a bit of a patchwork. It was drafted at different times with different criteria. And you often need a pretty thorough review of any uh, given situation to make sure that you can qualify. But in a nutshell, the two main beneficial rules for farmers is the intergenerational rollover provisions. And mm -hmm. you can liken that or it would be comparable to a spousal rollover. Most people are familiar with the rule that if one spouse dies, then they can transfer the property on a tax-deferred rollover basis to the surviving spouse. So in a farming mm -hmm. context, that is extended uh, if certain conditions are met to children. So you would be able to transfer certain qualifying farm property to the child on a tax-deferred rollover basis. The other one is the capital gains deduction. And for farmland now, there's a $1 million uh, limit for qualified uh, farm or, you know, we in, in Alberta, we simply just stop qualified farm property, but the definition is qualified farm or fishing, fishing property. Not too many fishers, of course, here in Alberta. So the focus, of course, is on the farming. At least they don't have much room to work with, quite frankly, right? Exactly. <laughs> But yep. so those are the two main uh, benefits that farms have. And, and so the planning off often simply involves making sure we qualify under the various different tests for those two provisions. And although they're somewhat similar, the nuances is where it uh, becomes interesting. So let's talk about both of those. I'm going to start with the, the second one first. So the lifetime, so the qualified farm, uh, deduction or whatever. So the qual one, okay. At this capital point. gains. So deduction. the one, so, yeah. So, so the capital gains deduction around qualified farms, that is basically the lifetime capital gains exemption that applies to other businesses only with a million dollar limit versus the 860 or something we're at right now, which is a next to inflation. And it also comes with the provision of it being a qualified farm. What constitutes a qualified farm? 
Oh, so good question. So the, the capital gains deduction for qualified farm property actually could apply uh, for generally three main types of property. So the first would be uh, land that is owned personally uh, by an individual. The second would be partnerships that are farm partnerships that qualify that is owned by an individual. And then the third is shares of a qualified farm corporation. And so and again, that's owned by an individual. And the thing to remember here is that the capital gains deduction only applies on an individual basis. So it has to be the individual that is selling or transferring that property, being you know the land itself, the partnership interest, or the shares. So you have to have individual ownership in order for you to qualify for that capital gains deduction. And it would apply to each of those types of land. So then each of those types of, sorry, each of those types of property is what I should have said. So each of those types of property have their own tests as to whether or not it would qualify for the capital gains deduction. And in a nutshell, if you want to be looking at land that's owned personally, then you would have to have in most cases, three basic tests that would need to be met, but this all depends on when the land had last been purchased by the owner. So if you had the land purchased prior to June of 1987, then you're under an easier test to qualify the land. If the land had been acquired after 1987, then you're under a somewhat more uh, stringent test in order for the land to qualify. And so, again, in a nutshell, what we're looking at for that land is, has it been owned by family members or the individual for 24 months preceding that period of time? Okay. In two years while the land was owned by that individual or family members, was the land used actively in a farming business carried on in Canada in which that person or other family members were you know, busy and active farming the land. And then you're into uh, either one of two tests. One is a revenue test, which would say that in the two years that it had been farmed and owned by those people, was the income from farming greater than all other sources of income? And if you can't meet that test, then actually you can jump into a different type of test that talks about, well, was the land farmed throughout a 24-month period by a qualifying farm corporation or a qualifying farm partnership. So as you can see, there's all these different- Lots tests. of ways to skin a cat, eh? <laughs> yeah, and and you, we, frankly, anytime we go through this analysis for clients, you are going back to basically the wording of the act to make sure that on a property by property basis, all of those properties that they're wanting to claim the capital gains deduction on or the specific one that, that we're looking at you can actually meet each of those tests and that they have to you know, get the check mark for each of those requirements in order for you to get there. So you had also mentioned the, uh, it's 883,000 and change for the capital gains deduction for qualified small business corporation shares. Mm -hmm. And so those two amounts, of course you get the higher amount for the capital gains deduction on the farm property, but if you've used it with regards to qualified small business corporation shares, then you you know you'll be eating into that mm -hmm. deduction. Yeah, it's, it's one deduction for 
both of those depending on yeah you don't get to double up and make it one you exactly know, make, make it make it both so okay yep. so and so again um, that, that much, that's sorry okay yeah, so, sorry. um go, no, you finish you finish your point well i was gonna say so that's just the you know and again a very high level analysis uh for farmland that's owned personally of course the analysis is quite different for if you're going to claim the capital gains deduction on shares of a farm corporation or a partnership interest. So again, those requirements generally require you to look and see if the if if the farming property in that corporation or partnership meets the 90% good asset test. And so in that situation, you'd have to look at each property that is owned by the partnership or the corporation and determining whether or not it's a good asset or a bad asset for purposes of calculating that 90%. And basically for it to be a good property, the, the farming years of that property have to be greater than 50% of the owner ownership years. So for example, if you had land that's in the corporation or the partnership and the cor corporation or partnership had farmed the land for 10 years, actively farming with you know family members uh, doing the work, and it had been rented for eight years, well, that would still be a good property for purposes of the 90% test. Excellent. So how much of the planning you do is around estate freezes and multiplication of that exemption, right? Because uh, at least as I'm familiar with it, the, the same kind of strategies we use in small business where we do an estate freeze and pass on gains to the next generation in order to access their uh, their exemption is is pretty doable on your, uh, with farms. Is that the case? Yeah, you bet. So the objective there, of course, is to multiply that capital gains deduction to lineal descendant, lineal family members. And the problem these days is with the price of farmland having gone up substantially, probably from when grandpa or great grandpa originally homesteaded the land, or even when your mom or dad first acquired the land, the capital gain often will be greater than the capital gains deduction that we have. And so in order for you to be able to multiply the capital gains deduction, there has to be some planning to be done, most likely to make sure we can get you into the intergenerational rollover provision, which means that we can perhaps shelter some of the, the gain to increase the cost base on the land when we transfer it down to the next generation, but then have some room left available for those children in order so that when they on sell or if they want to bump up the cost base of the land for their children, then they would also have a qualify. So definitely that is a, a huge issue that's facing farmers right now, just for the mere fact that the value of the land has probably in most cases far, far surpassed the shelter that you can get with the capital gains deduction. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> It's a good problem to have. Let's be honest, right? It, you know, don't For get me sure. wrong. It's a little bit. No one wants to carve off part of the family farm in order to pay a tax bill, but you know, let's not let's not all be boohoo. I'm I'm wealthier than I thought, right? Like that's the reality of it, right? No, hundred so, percent. And and it's it's funny to, you know, say oh, you know, you only got a million dollars tax free. Of course, that's uh, a boo. That doesn't play very well in certain circles. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and again, you know, that comes more down to a policy decision, of course. Yeah. You know, historically, and even I would argue today, the the objective here is to keep 
you know, family farms running uh, to make sure that if you have to sell a couple of quarters now, uh, that might actually significantly impact the viability of that farm. Mm. And so, you know, it, it does come into to, to play as to whether or not the subsequent generation would be able to carry on the farming business. So, you know, it, it gets interesting for sure. And, and I'm not too much of a policy guy. So, uh, you know, play, play with the rules. Avoid the controversy. Yeah, exactly. There we go. So, okay, fair enough. So let's get into the inter- intergenerational rollover provision. That is something I'm far, I'm going to say not even far less familiar with. I am not familiar with. So tell me about how that works. Yeah, you bet. So again, like I mentioned, it's similar to a spousal rollover in that if you have land, partnership interest, or shares of a corporation that qualify, you would be able to transfer that to uh, children or other lineal Mm -hmm. family members on a tax-deferred rollover basis. And there's some nuances there with regards to how that works and whether or not if you're doing it during your lifetime or if you're doing it on death. Quick caveat with regards to requirements though, in all cases, you know, you're looking at transferring this to lineal family members. So we have to have that. You can't transfer it to nieces and nephews or, you know, just anybody mm-hmm. else that you want. The individual has to be resident in Canada when we're transferring mm-hmm. the land over to them. And then after that, what you're really looking at is the principal use test. We call it so again, you're just simply looking at whether or not we have more farming years by family members during the ownership of that land as compared to non-farming years. And so again, this is where it gets complicated for some families if we have a situation where the land has been rented or it has simply been crop shared for a significant period of time, then it might be that you trip over the the non-farming years as compared to the farming years. And that test generally applies um, for all of those types of property. So personally owned land, uh, land that's in a corporation or in a partnership. For the partnership and the corporation, you're also looking at whether or not you have you know, more farming years um, than non-farming years. But again, in that situation, if it's in a corp- corporation or a partnership, uh, we're looking at the 90% good property test again. So you have to watch what the assets in the corporation actually are. And you can trip over the test if you start to have more non-farming assets. So too much cash that gets built up. And this is actually where we see a lot of problems where, you know, the farming operation has maybe wound down a little bit or they just start accumulating too much cash. Um, Then you have a big problem. And it's a very easy thing for CRA to do to look at, you know, a corporate financial uh, statement and say, tell us why this qualifies because we see much too much cash in this company. So, okay, explain to me then the Venn diagram of when it makes sense to use the rollover provision versus the capital gains exemption. So whether or not you're gonna use your capital gains deduction or the intergenerational rollover will often depend on the situation as we said. So we, in most cases, would want to increase the cost base of the land, the partnership interest, or the shares of the corporation by using the parent's capital gains deduction so that the child would have less tax to pay if they subsequently on sell it uh, to someone else. Or the child themselves could use their capital gains deduction so that we keep increasing the cost base of that property for subsequent generations. 
you would have to use the intergenerational rollover provision if the value of the land was greater than the capital gains deduction. Because by way of example, if you're transferring land that has a $2 million value, but you only have a million dollar of capital gains deduction available, then you know, by definition, the remaining million dollars over and above that capital gains deduction, you would have to pay tax on if you couldn't shelter it with the intergenerational mm. rollover provision. And so this, as I mentioned before, creates a bit of a nuance for the intergenerational rollover provision because if you are transferring farmland during your lifetime, you automatically fall under, under the rollover provision rules, which means that you can't utilize unless you do some different type of planning, your capital gains deduction, because that transfer from the parent to a child will automatically happen on a rollover basis. If you transfer the land on an intergenerational rollover basis on your death, then the income tax legislation has provisions that would allow you to elect at an amount between the cost base and the fair market value. So you could trigger a portion of a gain or and typically the portion of the gain to use up your capital gains deduction whilst rolling the remaining uh, appreciated value of the land to the children. And so that nuance between gifts during lifetime and gifts during death requires some careful planning if the parent wants to transfer the farmland to the child during their lifetime. And there are sometimes reasons for you to want to do that. If you know that the land is going to continue to be rented, uh, and so you know that your non-farming years are going to be greater than your farming years at some point, or, or you have reached that point almost, then the parents might say, well, it makes sense for us now to transfer this land to our children to utilize the intergenerational rollover because we know that in a few years we won't qualify for that. In that situation, of course, as I mentioned you can only transfer the land on a rollover basis unless you do other planning. So that other planning involves having the children purchase the land, typically with a promissory note. And in that way, the parents can trigger a capital gain because the land has been purchased by their child. And the you know nuance with that is, of course, well, now you have a child that owes the parent uh, money with a promissory note. Is it going to be repaid? What are the terms of payment if it is? Uh, but typically we see uh, that promissory note simply forgiven on death. And it's important to forgive it only on death because if you do it during your lifetime, the debt forgiveness rules will kick in with negative tax result. Um, but that, that is actually a pretty good plan for most folks if they get into this situation because it allows us to bump up the cost base of the property by using the parents' capital gains deduction. Of course, the parents don't get any cash out of this, so we have to tell them, look, you know, basically you're just pumping up the cost base of, of this property for the kids, but you know, sometimes it's still worth doing. The kids have a little bit of protection because of course they have now owe money to their parents. So if things go sideways in a relationship or with the land itself, or they have other creditors, then you know, hopefully you've protected that promissory note owing back to the parents and they would be able to you know call back that uh, that debt that's owing to them so it does give a little bit of uh, you know family dynamic protection as well uh, and then they simply have to update their will or their codicil so that it says I forgive you know this promissory note that's owing to me from the child 
And uh, that can be a good way to kind of get into both worlds for the intergeneration rollover and cap gains deduction if it's done during the lifetime. So, all right. I mean, the one thing you're teaching me from all this is that I am not handling any farm planning anytime soon. Uh, there's no way I'll get any level of proficiency <laughs> any, near, any near time in the future. But I mean, is it, yeah. Oh man. So many complexities there. So talk to me about the, the sale of a, of a family farm. Uh, you know, how does that planning differ from the estate planning side and passing on to the next generation? Yeah. So the interesting thing about the sale of the farm, of course, is now we, we would have cash that's coming in to the family, which, you know, the, the old, you know, kind of joke is of course, if you're using the capital gains deduction to bump up the cost base for subsequent generations, of course, there's no cash in your pocket. You're just putting more cash in the pocket mm. of your children. Whereas if you're doing the sale planning during your lifetime, then obviously getting the land, the interest in the corporation or partnership to qualify for it would be somewhat similar to uh, any planning that you would be doing for qualified small business corporation shares and just making sure that the assets in the corporation are the right mix, that the ownership tests, et cetera, have been met, and then and, and, and activity tests for that active farming. And then when you sell it, of course, you're looking to uh, capitalize that $1 million capital gains deduction um, in order to shelter the gain on that uh, appreciated value. So some, somewhat similar to other types of sale planning that we would be doing, but of course, as farmers uh, they're often quite fee adverse they don't ever like to pay tax whenever they can and so uh, it, it becomes interesting to try to do that type of planning with them but most of them appreciate uh, the work that you do and so it, it just does become interesting no one likes paying taxes let's just be <laughs> honest no one no one ever says Ooh, look at me i'm happy i'm sending my i'm sending syria a bunch of money no one has ever said that and if they did no they would one. get their head checked well, those who want to pay their fair share, I guess. <laughs> but, well, y'all, but yes, but you, you're going to deal with through gritted teeth. Let's be honest. No, <laughs> right? For like, sure. I'm paying my fair share. Like, that's that's for sure. So I, I did so, say I, mean, I wasn't a policy guy, so I'll stop. <laughs> fair enough. So, I mean, yeah, it's for, I would say this, this sounds like, I mean, I would say there's many planning topics that are not for the faint of heart, uh, cross-border, proper corporate restructuring and planning, which I have a lot of experience in, but farm planning, I now clearly falls into one of those realms as well, uh, differs very heavily from just standard business uh, succession planning, because again, you know, for various reasons, you don't have the large amount of capital invested in land in most businesses. You don't have the family dynamics issues that are further, you have that in business, but they're further complicated by the fact that these kids were raised on that, on that business, right? They were raised on it, like living on it. And, and then the, the rollover provision is also incredibly unique in that that doesn't really exist in other intergenerationally and other aspects of, of Canadian taxation from what I can see. No, farmers are very special when it comes to these types of rules. And it, it is, it is something that is near and dear to their hearts too. They all know about it. They all want it. Uh, they all want to make sure that they can capitalize on the beneficial rules that they have. The other thing, as you, as we were talking about kind of that, the sale planning is of course, if we know that the, um, a sale is going to occur, then trying to 
get yourselves into avenues where you can potentially multiply that capital gains deduction can be beneficial as well, of course. And so that, of, of course, needs some foresight, some planning, often with some complicated anti-avoidance provisions that we would need to watch out for. Because if we're going to be gifting property, for example, under an intergenerational rollover to a child, that child can't just turn around and sell the property and claim their capital gains deduction. Uh, the reason mm -hmm. for that is because the anti-avoidance rules in 69 would kick in to say, you know, you have to actually have held that property for at least three years. There can't be any anticipated sale that was on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course that makes sense because then you would simply have parents gifting farmland to their children and then, you know, different pieces to different children and then the children just simply turn around and they could all perhaps shelter the entirety of the gain with a capital gains deduction. So there are, there are some, you know, anti-avoidance type rules that would, would kick in depending on the planning mm -hmm. that we're trying to do. But at the same token, if we know that, you know, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, a, a sale might be on the horizon, uh, then there's some planning you can do. And, and sometimes even on under shorter time periods, but again, that, that goes into, you know, how the planning is, is actually orchestrated for the family. Yeah, it's, uh, that, that provision is interesting because I've had a couple of interesting cases around that. One, one client who insisted that their business was never going to be sold because that type of business never sells. And then six months later had a very <laughs> lucrative offer to buy the business. And which case like, can we go back and fix that now? I'm like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> like my favorite line on that is short of a DeLorean or a, or a phone booth that travels through time or a blue phone or, or a blue police box, you are paying that tax bill. Mm -hmm. So, so that's not happening. And the second one, I mean, the, the funnier one I ever I had was, well, what if I just talk to them and get them to hold off on the purchase for two years? <laughs> like, what, <laughs> what buyer's going to do that? Like, like, Oh no, no I, I want to sell to you, but let me get some planning done so that I can, I want to enter into a, an agreement just so I can sell it to you in 24 months. Like, no one's going to do that. Or should they? There's way too much risk to that. Like, are you kidding me? So oh, anyway, that's, sure. that's one of the funny ones. So tell me about the, what do you think the bigger challenge? I mean, there's clearly complexity here. What's the biggest challenge you encounter in dealing with people and, and farm planning? I think the biggest challenge that we have is when people aren't on the ball for meeting the different requirements, especially mm. in the corporation. And, and so what happens often is, as I mentioned, also just people get a little bit lackadaisical on the assets that are in the mix. They're not watching, you know, the cash being built up in the corporation. And then something unforeseeable happens like a death. And all of a sudden we're stuck in a position where we might not be able to qualify for these beneficial provisions for that farmer. And, and that to me is, is somewhat frustrating because there's nothing of course we can do at that point to go back and try to fix things. You're simply in a, in a situation where the land or, or sorry, the interest in the corporation just no longer qualifies. And I'd say that's one of the main ones. The other one is individuals putting personally owned farmland into partnerships or corporations. There's often a good reason to do that. And we might have mm. to do that. 
But the general rule of thumb is always try if you can, and especially if you already own the land personally, keep it owned personally. It's much easier to qualify the land for the capital gains deduction if the land is owned personally. Often for the intergeneration rollover, it, it, it can be a little bit easier. Um, but keeping the, the land owned personally would be the other, I guess, takeaway for if you're doing planning, try to do that. Uh, often the banks want the land in the company um, for various reasons. But if we can avoid that. The number of times I've seen banks direct something because it's what the way they wanted and then there was an adverse tax impact because they had no consideration for tax, for the tax issue, it, it outnumbers the times that it hasn't happened. So, so yes, n never just take the bank at face value for telling you what they want you to do because they're not looking at the long game. Exactly. And, and again, there are reasons to put it in there and sometimes you have to. It's often, if you're buying new land, it's, you know, better or not better, it's cheaper to often buy it in the corporation because you're using after-tax corporate dollars rather than after-tax personal dollars to buy the land. So that makes sense. But when, when it comes down to land owned personally, the general rule is once qualified, always qualified for the capital gains deduction. And so if you had your great-great-grandpa qualify this land, then perhaps it can continue to be qualified for subsequent generations, even if those people have never farmed the land, which is a great result for people if they can look back to that prior lineal ownership and say, oh no, my, you know, my dad or my grandpa qualified the land. So therefore it still qualifies for me, even though I've never farmed the land. Yeah, it's, it is. I do find it amusing that the, uh, just like it is with business, is the biggest hindrance is people not being organized um, or or just haphazardly managing their affairs because that is also the problem when it comes to organizing people for uh, for the sale of businesses, right? You know, they like, I want to sell the business. Okay, great. Um, you have no operations. You have no procedures. <laughs> You've been basically running all kinds of personal expenses through here and now you want full value for this thing? Like, let's get a little bit realistic, right? So uh, no, no different, no different. You know, there's a price to be, there's there's time to be paid for being organized and there's a price to be paid for not. And that uh, that definitely comes to roost, home to roost when it, when tax time rolls around. Yeah, and and often people don't want to pay, pay the expense or have the accountant do, you know, annual review or more in-depth reviews of, of the financial statements and where things are at. But at the end of the day, you might suffer the consequence for that. Uh, you know, it's it's penny penny wise and pound foolish, right? That's the saying is, congratulations, you managed to save on the ta on the accounting and tax bill, on, on the accounting fees and everything else. But, you know, sooner or later, it's going to come home to roost. The, you know, the, the, the best, the, high, the things of the greatest value are the things that are organized and, and properly taken care of not things that yes. have been neglected. So, so with that, before uh, this is, this has been very informative. Is there anything else people should know around this planning topic before we sign off? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think again, it's, it's one of those nuanced topics that each of the tests, because they're slightly different, they can lead to different results. And so being on top of that and finding somebody that can help somebody, you know, clients work through that process and that uh, those different requirements is often important, um, but- you So know, you're advocating it, for financial planners who specialize in farming? Is that what you're saying? Hey, hey anyone that can help with this is is definitely beneficial. The, the, the 
the final point I guess I would make is, you know, all the tax planning in the world is great if we can make it work. But as you mentioned mm. earlier, the nuance of the farm can cause more family, you know, no, no Christmas dinner type problems if the softer points aren't taken care of. And so in the estate planning that I do, a lot of the discussion for sure is focused around the tax planning, but a lot of it is focused on, is there something we can do to make sure we equalize? And there are a lot of cool plans and a lot of neat things that we can do in order to hive off, for example, certain parcels of land or even hive off a company on the side that can be given to the non-farming children. And that company itself, if we do it correctly, can qualify for these beneficial rules, uh, the intergenerational rollover, the capital gains deduction. But that way you can start, you know, putting different assets in buckets for the different children so that it is, has some semblance of, you know, fairness, if we can call it that. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So, Dan, before we sign off, where can people find you? Yeah, you bet. You can find me on our Fleski website. Uh, or you could email me at dzobel, D-Z-O-B-E-L-L, at com, And happy to take any uh, questions that anybody would have. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about and present on. And I, I, as I said, I romanticize it so much that I even went and bought myself my own little hobby farm. So, yep. Well, <laughs> So the complexity did you not discourage you from it. That's it. No, we're going to keep it on there. But the, so what you're telling me is that the, the yeah the complexity did not basically result in you and you shying away from this. Good to know. Anyway, Dan, thank you so much for shining a light on this uh, this area. I'm not very familiar with. I'm sure many people will find it fascinating because uh, unless you're operating in certain communities, you don't get a lot of exposure to this. Quite honestly, especially in this industry or and as an entrepreneur, only 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 farming entrepreneurs ever really touch this this issue. So very much appreciated. No, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Siri, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.